Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hello, everybody. This is Patrick Honeywell. My guest on this week's Chef Special on the Believe Podcast Network is an accomplished food and travel writer, TV host, social media guru, Mary Cell Salazar. So much talent, and where to begin? Well, I love her writing, eating off-duty column for Michelin Guide, The Tasting Table, Vine Pear, Pure Wow, and many more, I tell you. So what is Mary Cell's backstory? It all began in Madrid, Spain, with a bite of an anchovy-stuffed olive. Hey, Maricel, how are you doing today? Hey, Chef Patrick, I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing really good. Thank you for asking. Uh, hey, I wanted to let everybody know how I was first introduced to you. So I was listening to uh, one of Rob Patron's uh, episode of Hot Take on a Plate, and he's amazing. I love this podcast. And he had a, this uh, uh, professional young lady named Maricel Salazar. And so I was listening, go, oh my gosh, what a dynamic interview. And it's so deep and interesting. My first thought was, I learned a lot listening to that. And at the same time, I thought, I would love to ask her to be on my show and just kind of, because she's done so many cool things, maybe get a little background on you know, what, how it all began. Absolutely. And thank you for taking the time to check out my episode with Rob. He was a really wonderful friend to chat with. And we, it got a little spicy. Definitely yeah, the same hot takes on a plate. And it's funny because as I was chatting with Rob, I felt myself shaking with passion because I was so heated up about the subject that we were talking about as regards to food media and the intimacy that we share with certain pivotal figures amongst the restaurant industry and covering certain things that should or shouldn't be covered. It, it was a really great episode. So after everyone finishes listening to our episode with Chef Patrick, they should also <laughs> check out my episode with Rob. Oh, definitely. Something too. I love him. He's, he's so, so amazing. So yeah, that's uh that would be great. Hopefully I'm sure everybody will if they are already, I'm learning a lot just listening to his show. So, uh, so you've had an amazing, successful career, food travel, lifestyle writer, TV host, uh, brand consultant uh, in social yeah. media inf influencer. I want to talk about that maybe towards the end because that's fascinating because I can use help with that. So I'm, we'll talk about that. Um, oh, absolutely. Uh, but let's talk about your journey. I'm really interested in how, how you got started, how it all began. Absolutely. You know, I'll tell you something, Chef. I... Being a food writer was not something that was a a viable option, especially when you grow up in a household raised by a single parent. I I was raised by my mother. She was both mother and father to me. And I'm originally from Panama City, Panama. And growing up, we we were taught to be very financially independent, not just independent from a man per se, but financially independent from anybody. And after I moved from Panama City, Panama to Hawaii, and that was a consequence of my mother marrying an American who was in the Navy, we lived in Hawaii for several years, which was absolutely wonderful to grow up in as a child to experience, you know, all types of tropical island, Polynesian, Japanese food. But then after Hawaii, we ended up moving to Japan. So I spent a little time in Osaka, and then I lived in Okinawa, Japan, and that was a another wonderful childhood experience in the sense of being exposed to not only Japanese food, but Okinawan food, which is a little bit different from Japanese food, while also growing up eating Panamanian and Cuban food, because that was my background. And we took our recipes from Panama and Cuba across with us around the world. Now, I've always been exposed to different food cultures, just as a sheer consequence of how my life ended up being, we eventually moved back to the, or eventually moved to the contiguous United States, right outside of DC, Northern Virginia, which has an extremely diverse population, especially amongst Central and Latin Americans, as well as a lot of Black community, Jamaican, African, African American cuisine. It's really a hub of diversity. And yes, you can always say, oh, as a child, I love food, but you don't really understand, at least in my opinion, what it means to love food and really 
take it a little bit more seriously until you get older and you understand the cultural aspects of it. And that happened for me when I lived in Madrid. I went to Cornell University, which has a fantastic hospitality program. I took a bit of culture and enology. I took culinary courses. I was a cater waiter at one point. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. It was really fantastic. And it, it definitely gave me a more textbook knowledge regarding food, but it wasn't until I was living in Madrid in 2010, I believe, that I had this culinary epiphany chef. I, I remember exactly where I was the moment thunderstruck and my the entire path of my life changed. I was in El Mercado de San Miguel, which is this semi-covered outdoor famous market in Madrid, and I took a bite out of an anchovy stuffed olive and it was truly this ratatouille moment. I the fireworks went off. I was completely floored by the flavor of this single anchovy stuffed olive, which is incredibly umami, briny, salty, savory, meaty. And it it struck me right then and there that I wanted to learn everything about this olive, the person or the people that put together this combination, why they did so, what were the events leading up to this one pivotal moment in my entire life. And that's, that's when I realized, okay, it wasn't enough for me to say that I love food by eating a ton of it and trying new things and maybe perhaps being a bit gluttonous, but I really wanted to take the time to figure out the backstory of it and what are the events and histories that led up to this culmination to this one anchovy stuffed olive, which is what makes food really interesting and flavorful is not only how it physically tastes, but the backstory behind it. Mm -hmm. That's, that's amazing. Let me mention really quickly how you just inspired me uh, to think about my past a little bit in that having that anchovy. And, and so what you did, you brought me in the back of the kitchen. I'm imagining the chef or the cook uh, putting that together, what they did to the anchovy, even before it went in all the process. And that really stimulated you to go further. Many years ago uh, at the Western Hotels, uh, we had a chef table, a chef's table uh, during lunch. And we got uh, Frederick Gaston was, it was an excellent chef from France. And we'd have different chefs that, that would make some food. I'll never forget, he made a lunch. And I, I thought, that's oh, simple, you know, a little bit of chicken. And the flavor exploded in my mouth. I, I thought, what? My mouth actually opened up and I went, oh, and breathing. <laughs> so I'm thinking, what the heck did this guy do? What is his process? And then after that, eventually I followed him. I watched him because just as you're saying, it makes sense. I wanted to see how he brought up all these flavors, what motivated him to do something that I'd never tasted uh, or had been affected in that way for my whole life. It was amazing. Absolutely. And the fact that somebody could make you think in such a critical and inspired manner means a lot. It, it's really inspiring to take a bite of food that motivates all of these thoughts, feelings, and emotions, which is why for so many of us, food is completely emotional outside of political, functional, medical. There's, there's so many things that food ties into. And by even me just saying that, think about all the stories that can be told from it, which, which is what really, even now I'm getting excited thinking about it. You know, I'm like, oh, I wonder what happened with that chicken that you took a bite out of. And, you know, coming, Coming from that bite of an anchovy stuffed olive, and like every college student who goes to study abroad in Europe, of course, I came back the total cliche of a, a woke young person. <laughs> but I truly, uh. I truly didn't want it to stay as, oh, I went to Europe and I'm so cultured. It to me at that point, it was figuring out. I've been struck by lightning. This was love at first sight. What can I do to make sure that? Working and writing about food is something that I'm doing my entire life because, like, again, I said, I, I come from a single parent household and my family, they're consultants. They work for the federal government, something extremely secure, stable, and safe because of my upbringing. And writing about food and getting into food is the exact opposite of secure, stable. <laughs> no kidding. Safe, let alone financially <laughs> viable. Oh, man. So... What did I do? I graduated school. I was starting to write for small publications on the side as I was working as a business management consultant outside of Washington, D.C. 
I then went on to become a web analyst for a healthcare treatment consulting firm. Very sexy. I almost fell asleep as those words came out of my mouth. I'm sorry. Wake me up. What was that? Oh, no, it sounds sexy. It really does. <laughs> and again, to be another cliche, I was quite literally moonlighting as a food writer for very small niche publications in D.C., but I was going out to restaurants. I was very fortunate that before he was famous, my mother was friends with Jose Andres when he had his first, you know, um, Haleo, his tapas bar in Washington, D.C., because we would, we would go there all the time just for casual lunch. And I remember one time my mother, I think I must have been in college, Jeff, asking me, hey, do you want to come to my friend Jose's party? He's a chef. It's going to be in, in Maryland. Do you want to come with me? And I was like, oh, mom, why would I want to go? to some old person birthday party. No thanks. And of course, years now, I'm kicking myself. But again, you don't care about food when you're young and the, the, the meaning of it until you get older and you educate yourself a little bit more. And so I was in D.C. I was writing for very small publications. I was doing small kitchen externships, I suppose you could call them, around around the city just to get a sense of what it would feel like and what was my place in the city. Did I want to be in the food industry? Did I want to be a writer? Did I want to shell out the money to go to culinary school? What about baking? Or did I want to start a restaurant? I really didn't know. So I took the time to spend a little bit of time in each one of those different areas just to make sure that I knew where my place was, so to speak. But at the end of the day, I really knew I needed to move to New York City in order for anything to take off the ground. Because Washington, D.C. at that point wasn't the culinary restaurant destination that it is today. It was extremely infantile stages. It, it wasn't a very easy place to break into any facet of the culinary industry. And, of course, there was a financial aspect of it. So I asked my company that I was working for at the time. If they wouldn't mind, if I worked remotely, moved to New York City while still retaining my job. And they said yes. They just, they said yes. And I couldn't believe it. So I went for it and I moved before they could change their mind. Bam. Yeah. I'm in New York City now. It's 2014. I'm on the ground again, meeting chefs and restaurants, going, going out to lunch and interviewing people for for my publications, writing late into the night. At this time, I became an editorial assistant while while having my full-time job for a small, clean-eating, healthy publication. And then I started writing for smaller New York-based magazines. And that's where I really got my start. And it was, it was a big fish, eat little fish type of process. Because the more I wrote, the more my name got out there, the more my reputation circulated amongst the restaurant culinary industry. Simultaneously, I started my Instagram, which also helped further expose my reputation and my name. But it wasn't really, and hopefully this is something that folks can relate to. It wasn't until 2014 when I got laid off, chef, from my job that things truly started to look up. And you might think, wait, what do you mean? She just got laid off. What do you mean things are no. looking up? I get that. <laughs> yeah. You know, it was something that I needed because, again, going back to how I grew up in a single parent household and, you know, being and being an immigrant, you know, I'm, I'm, an, I'm an American citizen now. I got my citizenship when I was a child. But, you know, I'm I'm an immigrant. English is my second language. I come from a single parent household. Again, these are all things that would just fly in the face of maybe perhaps somebody else with a different, more privileged background being like, yeah, I'm going to go be a food writer, which is extremely low paying and take unpaid internships in New York City at these glossy magazines while shelling out money for, for loans to support this unpaid internship. That just wasn't an option. And so I knew I, I look at being laid off in 2014 as a blessing, even though it was the scariest thing that had ever happened to me financially and professionally at the time. If if I hadn't been pushed out, I would have never voluntarily left my job. Never. And so I decided, Chef, you know what? I'm going to try to make this food writing thing work. I am going to give myself six months of savings. I applied for unemployment. I'm just going to give myself six months of, of trying with my savings. And if it didn't work at the end of six months, say, I, I tried. But what if it did? 
And I've never looked back. It, I can't imagine going back to the life that I led now. It, it seems like a far away dream, not even a dream because it's, that's not the life that I wanted. And I was really fortunate that during, during my senior year at Cornell, when I was, when I was struggling with how to become a food writer, because it's not, it's not a career path that you get a degree in, at least in those days at school. It's not something that's completely obvious. You go to a career fair and you apply to be a food writer, X, Y, and Z company. So I reached out to a former food critic at the Washingtonian, which is a wonderful publication in the DC area. And his name was Todd Kleiman. And, and by reaching out, I stalked his assistant, got her email, sent her an email asking if Todd would speak to some random student about what it was like to become a food writer and his advice on it. Didn't think he would ever get back to me. Assistant got back to me, put Todd on the phone, and I spoke with him for, my God, like an hour or something. And the best piece of advice that I still think about every single time, every single day, he said to me, Marisol, becoming a food writer is going to be hard. You're not going to make a lot of money. It'll be a lot of struggles. It'll be a lot of no's. But what if, what do you do if what you love doesn't love you back? You do it anyway. And I've carried that with me every single day because, you know, and I'm, it's, I think it, I think it's similar to being a chef if you, if you agree. Being a chef is hard. You're on your feet all day. It's, it's not, you know, a, this is, we didn't get into what we do for the money of it. Yeah. Money could potentially happen. Big money could happen down the line, but we got into it for the love and passion of it. But it's a, it's a rocky love. It's a hard love. It's tumultuous love, but we do it anyway. But in the writing side, uh, you've got the tasting table was very interesting that the thing that grabbed me right away was that article, how to travel to Cuba without looking like a total tourist. What motivated you to write that? It was actually because of my first time traveling to Cuba. So as I mentioned, I'm Cuban and Panamanian and my grandmother is from Havana from a neighborhood called La Lisa. It's actually a, a yeah, it's, a, it's, it's funny. It's not something that I talk about because when I tell people, oh, I was born in Panama City, Panama, they peg me, of course, you know, you're Panamanian. That's what I did. I'm also, yeah. yeah. But I'm also, hmm. I'm also Cuban. Mm-hmm. And so my grandmother was from La Lisa in Havana. She was actually, no joke, a, um, a dancer, like one of the showgirl dancers. You, wow. you think of the, the Tropicana, the sure. big feathers and the boas. Mm-hmm. That was what she did. Mm. And I was traveling to Cuba for my first time to be reunited with the remaining surviving family that I had there. Mm. Because since my mother was a federal government employee, Mm-hmm. She legally could not travel to mm. Cuba. Yep. And it wasn't until the Cuban American relations eased up a little bit and allowed more travelers to Cuba that I as an American had the opportunity to go under several strict application requirements. And the visa that I went on was called a people to people visa. And mm-hmm. it was also, and that also stems for reuniting with family. Mm-hmm. So if you're a Cuban back, and think about it as like birthright, but for mm-hmm. Cubans. Mm-hmm. And so I went on this trip to Cuba and I was reunited with my, they're called Tia Abuelas and Tia mm-hmm. Abuelas translates to, they're, they're my grandmother's sisters. Mm. So they were my grandma and my, my, I never got to meet my Cuban grandmother because she died when my mother was 13. Oh my. So I got to meet her sisters and it was a really emotional moment for them because I was the only progeny, I suppose that you could say, <laughs> from their sister that they had ever gotten to meet. And it it was truly, truly emotional um, mm. experience and really eye-opening. And so I wrote about my experience getting to Cuba because I do think it's a it is a country that folks should experience, particularly as Americans. And mm. the Cuban food that we eat in America, if you've ever had the pleasure of eating it, is nothing like the Cuban food in Cuba. And I say that in the regard that Cuban food in America is a hundred times better than Cuban food in the, on the actual Island because they do not have access to quality ingredients. It's a very poor country. Mm -hmm. And 
I, I, I wanted to write about it. I wanted to, to talk a little bit more about not necessarily my identity so much, but, but mm-hmm. perhaps, you know, a functional aspect of getting there. But I am for, I'm actually doing some recipe development for a cooking website about really? Cuban food. Yeah, I'm really excited to get back into the kitchen. Again, something that most folks don't know about me was that, yeah, I worked as a chef assistant for several several chefs here in New York City as I was exploring where my place was in the food industry. And I also started my own underground wholesale granola business. It was straight up out of my apartment. And I would be baking something something to the tune of 50 pounds of granola in your Every apartment? Every single week. In my apartment. It was an all day and all night affair. Oh, big time. It was hot too. It was like, oh, the oven was on constantly. So I was baking all this wholesale granola. I remember I would cart it in a food grade plastic bin. I would walk 50 pounds of granola every week to make my deliveries to boutique hotels in Soho. And the only reason that I got started in this business has to do with my food writing. I was interviewing a restaurateur, an Italian French restaurateur in Nolita for a story I was writing about him. And he and his French business partners were also opening this hotel in Soho. And one day as a gift, I suppose it was a morning gift, I gave him this jar of granola because his mother, his mother had died. And rather than words of consolation, I decided here, let me make you something from, from the heart, something that hopefully will ease your pain, if not fill your stomach. That's so sweet. Yeah. He opens this jar of granola and it's my, you know, my recipe that I've always made forever that people love. He smells and he goes, ah, myself, this is like the caviar of granola. You must sell it to my hotel. And I thought, you want, you want me to make you granola for your hotel guest? That yes. says a lot. Yes. How, how could you do it? When can we start? And I just said, yes. I was like, okay, let's do it. So yeah, it was it was actually quite something. And I'm sure you feel this way as a chef when you see people enjoying your food, and then you're like, oh, someone wants to buy my food. It's huge. It's, <laughs> it's so yeah, cool. Yeah, it's so gratifying. So I was, and I eventually expanded. You know, I was working across different hotels and cafes. But again, it's not something that I advertised. It was word of mouth because I was baking out of my apartment. I always say to folks, baking is not dainty. It's not cute. It's hard. You get burned. It's hot. Your back hurts. The, and it, you know, it really taught me a lot about kitchen management and organization, especially when it comes to forcing ingredients and costing, because I really, I was making pennies on the pound. I was not turning a profit. You know, if, if we factored in the, my labor cost, I was in the negative. So it was, it was not financially viable. Maybe it was a bit of an ego boost in the fact that I saw so many people enjoying my granola. You know, I even went as so far as to go to Hot Bread Kitchen, which is an incubator in Harlem to look at commercial kitchen spaces. And I designed a website for it. I, I had packaging. I thought, I'm going to go into the granola business. And then I realized that's not what I want. <laughs> No, I think what you're doing now is some, is perfect for you. You know, in fact, yeah. <laughs> so so that's from the tasting table, your writings, the travel to Cuba without looking like a tourist. That's one of the cool stories, but there's many more. Um, there's another uh, vine pear. It's vine pear. And yeah. that's where you you have some amazing things on, on you know, wine and, and uh, different beverages. It's on the more on the beverage side. And which is fascinating um, to me. But what really caught my eye was probably what you you might think I might ask because of your Mm -hmm. background. Why a pound of Panama Geisha coffee sold for $1,029 per pound and it was worth it? Tell me about that. Oh, I'm so glad you asked me about that. I, I, I was so proud and happy to write that article, especially about it's coming from my country. It's amazing. I love coffee. I'm extremely coffee obsessed. And I've always been of the mindset that if folks will shell out hundreds of dollars, thousands of dollars even for a bottle of wine or something upwards of $20, $50 for a sheer glass of wine at a restaurant, why wouldn't they do that for coffee? Because there's so many parallels between wine and coffee. They both have, you know, the concept of terroir. They, both of the growers, the winemakers and as well as the coffee growers, the land, the geography, the latitude, the longitude, the 
the makeup of the earth, it all affects how the coffee cherry and the grapes contain their sugars and the acidity. It, it's fascinating. There's so many parallels. And to me, coffee makers, particularly in Panama, take just as much care in cultivating, drying, roasting their coffee as a winemaker would do for their wine. Also for the fact that Panama, year after year, has been the highest bidding dollar per pound for coffee at auction. You know, we put we really put specialty coffee on the map. Specialty coffee has existed in the past couple of decades, but it's really been these extremely high award-winning coffees, and they're primarily bid and bought by folks in Asia and Japan. Also, a couple of people here in America that... Um, that are really, really into coffee, like Willoughby Coffee and Tea is one of them. You also have a um, Dragonfly Coffee out in Colorado. So when you have folks who really start to appreciate coffee and will shell out money for it, it's something that, as a consumer, really perks your ears. So this Panama Geisha coffee, if you think about it like maybe a really fine bourbon, when you have coffee connoisseurs, this way you have whiskey connoisseurs, they will pay the price for a good product because it's really meaningful for them. It's kind of like being an art collector. And the fact that this coffee went, you know, above a thousand dollars does not surprise me because of the care and attention that was made to it. But the funny thing is that most folks don't have the opportunity, particularly Panamanians, to even try this coffee. And it's because of a global coffee culture. You know, when we live in the fast casual chains of Starbucks, Dunkin' Donuts, most people don't have access to trying specialty coffee, which is why I really think there needs to be more of a need and more cafes that are offering these beans rather than these, you know, multinational chains that are, their R&D, I'm sure, is incredible. I don't blame them. Their R&D is great. They know what their consumers want. But why not introduce the consumer to something different, something grown, grown small, single origin, which is the third wave of coffee. and the fact that it was my country that was really propelling coffee, specialty coffee in particular, on this trajectory of luxury was, I was very proud to write it for Vine Pair. And I love writing for Vine Pair because they're really open and accepting to stories like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, amazing story. Amazing story. Thank uh, you. Uh, you know, I hope <laughs> one day you get to try you get to try this Panama Geisha coffee too. It's by Wolfers Lamastis of Alita Family Estates. They, they ship here to the United States. And if you ever find yourself in Washington, D.C., there is um, the first Panamanian coffee shop to open. It's called Cafe Unido, and I think it is in La Cosecha in Washington, D.C. They are now serving Panamanian-sourced coffees as well as specialty coffees. Um, and it, it's really it's really fantastic what they're offering. Sounds amazing. You know, when I think of coffee, I think of Jamaican I think of Kona, mm. Kona, Hawaii. Uh, yes, of course. But but you know Panama. I I may have to one day. Maybe you can introduce me to a coffee grower. I'd love to do an interview. If you if you if you don't beat me to it, <laughs> I would I would love to introduce you to uh-huh. Wilfred Lamastiff. He would be a wonderful person to chat. Oh with. man, that would be awesome. Does he speak? Uh, he's down there. Does he speak English and Spanish? Perfect or? English. Oh, okay. Yeah, most, it's it's great. Most Panamanians are bilingual. Of course, that's true. What am I thinking? Okay. <laughs> My only time spent there was uh, flying down on the way to Brazil, you know, through uh, a Copa Air. And it was, it's. Yeah, uh, probably through Tucumán. <laughs> That's true. You know, so there's, you also write a Pure Wow uh, call. It's amazing, Pure Wow column, which in this you cover, and there were so many amazing, interesting uh, topics. I looked and I thought, oh my gosh, where do you begin? You cover all sorts of interesting topics, but do you have a favorite or two from that that you'd like to talk about? Yeah, absolutely. I, I really love being Pure Wow's resident food columnist, especially with the New York City beat. I began a monthly column for them called Things to Eat, which I truly enjoy because every month I pick 15 or 20 or so different restaurants in the city featuring one particular item at said restaurant or bakery that I think is is destination worthy. And it ranges anything from a, a cookie to a sandwich to a to a cocktail to to a lasagna. Because more often than not, as regards to 
dining destinations or restaurants, we get told, hey, go to this restaurant. But we don't really get told, hey, here's the one particular item that you should eat when you're here. And why is it special and important? Because we live in a very fast consumer-paced world. Folks are always on to the next. They want to see or they want to eat the next big thing. We have very short attention spans when it comes to food. And that's why I really love doing this article because it also helps or this column because it really helps me cover more ground in New York City. And it, it enabled me to meet more folks, more chefs, more restaurateurs. Um, so I love, I love my things to eat column on Pure Wow. And it, it was one of, one of their most popular columns. And fortunately due to coronavirus, they're rethinking their editorial strategy. Budgets have been cut, which is a whole other thing. Um, but I, I eventually, I also like to, to write about lifestyle and beauty and they, they give me an opportunity to do so. At some point, you, you get quote full of food and you're just not hungry anymore. So it's nice to have a different creative editorial outlet to talk about things that I'm also interested in, which might be a little bit girly. Definitely. Uh, but that's, that's, <laughs> that's so cool. Like on your Instagram, which you have an amazing Instagram with beautiful photos and uh, just so many things to look at. We'll, we'll uh, share that information on uh, at the end of the show. But you look very yeah. athletic to me. You look fantastic. And I'm thinking how one day, maybe an interview on how does somebody in the food industry uh, stay so slim and, and look so great? Uh, either you're not oh, yeah. able to eat a lot of the food you're, <laughs> you're talking about, or you just, you know, have a very healthy lifestyle that goes along with, um, you know, writing about different restaurants and food. Absolutely. I, I do get that a lot of uh, a lot of the time. And I I make the parallel to Kobayashi Takeru, who is a Japanese hot dog eating champion. You have ever checked out this guy. My God, he's got like an eight pack. And he is an award winning hot dog, hot dog eater, hot dog champion. And he trains for his job. He works out like an athlete so that he can eat how he does. And so I took a similar train of thought. I, I trained for my job as a food writer because yes, I eat a lot of food. I'm exposed to a lot of different cuisines and I want to try everything. But I also realized in order to be a self-employed small business woman, I have to have the energy in order to keep up with all the things that I'm doing from a physical standpoint. If I'm out and about in the city all day, on my feet or if I'm traveling, I have to have the physical endurance and stamina and muscle to, you know, put, you know, to wear like a 20 pound book bag with a laptop and, and equipment to be able to drag my suitcases from airport to airport or, you know, to run something. I, I, I really look at how I treat my body also as a physical means to do my job better. And a lot of folks would be like, oh, that's, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't think of someone that works in food as wanting to train in order to do their job in food. But I, I really did notice a difference. The stronger that my back got because of working out, the less fatigued I felt wearing a book bag with my laptop all day as I was running from interview to interview or, you know, on the metro. When I would travel, I really did feel stronger and more energetic in order to step off a plane at 8 a.m. in Europe when I had just traveled seven hours from New York City and go into a full day of press events and activities. So now I want to speak a little bit about uh, eating off duty or Michelin writing. It's um, you've got some really cool, awesome interviews with chefs and, you know, some um, I think some pretty just it just takes you really in the back of the kitchen. But you also get an idea what the chefs like to do when they're off hours. Um, yeah, so it's just amazing. I think if anybody's interested in really seeing what it's, you know, things that make a chef tick uh, behind the house and, and just onward, that's a good column, eating off duty. How did you start that? You know, I'm really glad that you asked this question. It, it stems from that anchovy stuffed olive moment, what makes someone tick in order to create this. But the true inspiration for this column was a real life experience. I was walking in, was I in? Soho. I was walking down the street in Soho one day randomly a couple years ago, and I ran into um, a chef that I'm acquainted with. His name is Jeremiah Stone. He is the head chef of Contra and Wild Air, along with his co-chef, Fabian Von Husk. I ran into Jeremiah as he was stepping out of this 
Crepe's place. I think it's called Le, Le Creperie. Honestly, a place that I would never think twice about stepping into. And we started chatting. I said, hey, how's it going? We're catching up. And I asked him, so what did you get here? Why are you in here? And he says, oh, you know, I was really just missing Paris and I really wanted some Parisian French food. So I decided to to go get a crepe because I was feeling nostalgic and I wanted to eat French food. And that made me think, huh, what? this is interesting. Jeremiah cooks these beautiful tasting course menus. You know, while, while they're in Contra, are award-winning, very lauded establishment. Of course, he's not eating these tasting menus and this fine, fancy food 24-7, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. He's eating crepes like this when he's out of his kitchen. And that's what inspired my column, Eating Off Duty, was what do chefs eat when they're outside of their kitchen restaurants? Well, for Jeremiah, at this particular moment, it's a, it's a crepe because he was missing Paris. So I wonder what he eats for breakfast. I wonder how he takes his coffee because it's, it, it humanizes chefs. Who they are on their restaurant menus is not who they are all the time. And that's where it was born. And so I went, I went from there and I started profiling folks who I really enjoyed, admired. And for me, this was particularly important because I got to choose within degree who I, who I profiled. And I wanted to profile minorities and people of color as much as I possibly could. So if they were within the Michelin guide, I wanted to bring their voices up. So I, I was really fortunate to profile um, JJ Johnson, you know, who is a part of the Michelin Guide to profile Kwame Nwachi from formerly of now Kiss and Kin in Washington, D.C. I was able to profile Dominique Crenn, who I actually met while I was in Panama, um, which was really fantastic. I was able to profile Dominique Crenn, you know, the only three Michelin star female chefs in the United States. It really gave me the opportunity to change the narrative in the sense of by me featuring more minorities and people of color, I was hoping that, you know, I could sort of change the face of what fine dining meant. Like it's not the same Anglo-Saxon male chef that we would normally think of, even though they're just as wonderful. I interviewed Mauro Colo Greco, Juan Roca, fantastic, um, Francois Payard. Wow, I saw that. Yeah. So for me, it was also really kind of changed by changing the angle of who I featured more heavily. I was able to hopefully change the narrative of who who gets to be a Michelin chef and maybe hopefully inspire folks and readers um, to also think about who who is a chef and who gets to be a chef. Well, you know, the off duty aspect or eating off duty is pretty fascinating. Now, you you know, you're not currently a chef. uh as for your line of work, but you're always around food. So now I'm going to, if it's okay with you, I'm going to hit you with some of the questions uh, off duty when you're not actually working, ask you some of the same questions you ask your chefs. Is that okay? Yeah, absolutely. That's so fun. <laughs> so now this is going to be a little bit rapid fire, but uh, okay. You'll recognize these questions. Okay. And I, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> okay. So what was the last thing you ate? Okay, truthfully, it was about 10 minutes before we got on this phone call, which was a piece of toast from Trader Joe's with nice. coconut okay. coconut butter and a cup of Stumptown's coffee, Stumptown's filtered coffee hair bender with a splash of almond milk. Wow, interesting. And I don't know, I haven't had cocoa, well, cocoa butter. Well, we'll get into that later because I want to make this kind of rapid butter fire. made from coconut. <laughs> yeah, this is really interesting. Okay, that's one. Next question. It's your day off. What do you have for breakfast and where? Well, we're not in the COVID, you know, when it's not like it is now, but when everything was back, it gets back to normal. It's your day off. Yeah. So I can tell you what I had most recently. I remade a muhammada breakfast egg sandwich with um, that I'd recently learned with a fine dining Panamanian chef, Mario Castrillon of Mainito. So we did an Instagram live and we... We made a breakfast egg sandwich, which was on a Martin's potato bun, toasted in butter, with a scrambled omelet of fresh farmed eggs with smoked hickory ham, uh, cheddar cheese, and then the muhammada. The muhammada is like a Middle Eastern salsa, you could say, which is a roasted roasted red bell peppers, crushed crushed garlic, um, 
splash of olive oil, a little bit of lemon juice, to put it very simply. And so we spread the muhammara on this breakfast egg sandwich. And it is awesome. Oh, so good. That sounds amazing. It is amazing. Okay, next next question. Uh, you list this as a controversial question to hit these chefs with. Do you, do you believe in brunch? Yes, you know, contrary to, you know, what a food writer should say. And they're like, oh, breakfast only. I believe in brunch. Mostly to the fact that I, I typically only eat two meals a day, starting around 12 or or, or one or two. Um, so by, by sheer default, my first meal of the day is some combination of breakfast and lunch, a.k.a. brunch. And yeah, you know, I, I do enjoy it. Before coronavirus, it, it was a really convivial, convivial setting. It, people got together, they got to catch up. Maybe it wasn't so much about food rather than the social aspect of it. And yes, like anything in life, there's, there's the negative side effects. You know, you got the Bellini's mimosas and the drunk brunches and maybe, maybe food that folks are like, Oh, that's so cheesy and food porny. But there's also a lot of great things that come from brunch as well. You know, I, I enjoy a big stack of pancakes and French toast or, or eggs or whatever. I think brunch is really a, a more of an opportunity to get creative than maybe a drag on your culinary repertoire. What is your local coffee shop and what do you order? So I go to Devocion, which is a Colombian cafe. They have four locations across the city. The one that I most frequent is here in Gramercy. And what's really special about them is that they take their green coffee beans from Colombia and fly it over to their roastery based in Williamsburg and roast their coffee in 10 days or less. It is incredibly fresh coffee. And you really do notice the difference. And their cafe interiors are gorgeous chefs, lots of plants cascading. So they also have their flagship roastery location in Williamsburg. They have one in downtown Brooklyn and Livingston, and the one that I go to is here in Gramercy. I also really enjoy Daily Provisions, which is right next to Union Square Cafe. I love going to Daily Provisions. Before it blew up and got popular, I thought, oh, this is going to become my own, you know, cozy Italianish neighborhood coffee shop, even though it's owned by Union Square Hospitality Group, Danny Meyer. Uh, so Devocion and Daily Provisions are my two local coffee shops. But I'm always on the hunt for more. So if any readers of Chef Patrick's have recommendations, please let me know. Where do you go when you travel to your favorite city? That one I was really curious about. You know what? I'll go for one of the, the countries that I am desperate to get back to, and that is Copenhagen in Denmark. I wrote an entire coffee guide on where to go for coffee in Copenhagen for Vine Pair, actually. So when I'm in Denmark or in Copenhagen, specific, Copenhagen specifically, I like to go to Ristedet, mm -hmm. which means roaster in Danish. And they're a really, they're a classic coffee shop. Um, they're making a lot of like really high quality, fresh, locally roasted coffees. Um, I like Visteret. I like the Coffee Collective, Sunny, which is great. The Corner at 108, which is the Noma offshoot. So Corner at 108 is from the Rene Redzepi kind of family of um, collection of restaurants. It's kind of like a, I don't know, it's like a, a cool little sister. I like mm. to think about it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I really like to go to restaurant Geranium. I like to go to all of their bakeries. The Danes mm -hmm. are incredible bakers. Good so time. something like, uh, what is the big, oh my gosh. So in Danish, it's called Lagerhuset. Mm -hmm. But we can actually find this Danish bakery here in America under the moniker Ole Dean. Have you heard of that? Mm -mm. No. Uh -uh. So they are in the Union Square area and they're, a Danish bakery. They have incredible pastries like Tabeka. Mm -hmm. Tabeka is a sesame seed covered, lightly sweet roll. They have Tabeka, they have can of snow, they have cardamom snow, which are, I guess, most closely represents a cinnamon twist or a cardamom twist. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm obsessed with Denmark. I, I think it's truly amazing. And I actually have a bunch of photos of where I went to when I was in Copenhagen on my Instagram, if um, uh, folks want to check that out. You know, I didn't know you were half Cuban too, or part Cuban and, and Panamanian, but Panamanian food, have you ever written about any restaurants in Panama? 
what? I, I'm not. And it's something that I wanted to start doing this year, and especially after my last visit to Panama was in February of last year, I believe. And I, I had been planning on coming back, but then coronavirus kind of put a, a screeching halt to that. Panama, not only because I'm Panamanian, but Panama is really elevating the food scene across Central and Latin America. You know how we always think of Peru and perhaps Lima as really the the pinnacle of gastronomy and fine dining in Latin America or, you know, places in Brazil, Argentina, Panama is coming up quick. The the chef that I mentioned that I made breakfast eggs, Muhammad breakfast egg sandwiches with Mario Castrillon, he was rated number 17 on Latin America World's 50 Best Restaurants last year. And he's been on the World's 50 Best list year after year and only ratcheting up the the scale. And it's not just because of this one restaurant. And also, this is a restaurant that Dominique Crenn and I went to while we were in Panama, and she was completely floored by it and loved it. But what we're doing on the culinary scene is absolutely incredible taking indigenous foods, foods from the beach, foods from the Caribbean, Afro-Caribbean, you know, because we have a huge Afro-Caribbean population. Um, even that Muhammad that I mentioned, which is Middle Eastern Arabic, that we have a lot of Arabic undertones in our cuisine because of the Panama Canal. When workers came in, there was a lot of Middle Eastern and uh, Arabic folks that came in to help build the canal and their mm-hmm. food of course, like with anything, was adopted and got uh, initiated into what it means to be Panamanian cuisine. So it's not just some like, oh, I'm going to take something that's completely unrelated from the Middle East and like dump it on Panamanian food. It's like, mm-hmm. no, this is now part of the cuisine. Mm-hmm. Um, what's fascinating is that there's, as, as of course, as I'm sure you know, you know, American and Panamanian relationships are very close. Mm-hmm. And Western culture, and particularly American culture, is hugely influential on Panamanian cuisine. So we are doing things like breakfast egg sandwiches. We have incredible um, riffs on hamburgers. Mm. Uh, it's it's really special, and I would that is something I would love to profile just to get into what it means to have Panamanian cuisine. Because with a lot of a lot of Latin American cuisine, you ask someone, what do you think of when you hear Latin American cuisine? You probably think Mexican food mm-hmm. and it's so much more diverse than just Mexican food. Or I get asked all the time, mm-hmm. chef, Oh, you're Hispanic. You must really like spicy food. Wrong. I err on the conservative side of the Scoville scale because in Cuban and in Panamanian food, we don't use a lot of spice. We're not, we're not heat seekers. You want to taste the food. And we do use a lot of fresh seafood, like in our ceviche because we have such a long coastline you know spice is not something that we're like super big into and the same thing is for cuban food if you actually eat have eaten cuban food you don't see a lot of spiciness in there and it really ranges across different countries within latin america i like to think about it in the italian sense that there's so much hyper regionality when it comes to places like italy places like france that exists too in Latin America and even within Latin American countries, there's hyper-regionality and it's all based upon the geography or the terroir. Did your mom or have somebody preparing, you know, a Panamanian food at home? Absolutely. I mean, I've been, I've been cooking Panamanian and Cuban food since I first got into the kitchen. Uh, you know, and I'd love to share maybe some, some traditional dishes with, with you and the listeners and sure. if they ever come across awesome. it so they can try it, you know, one okay. of one of our hallmark, hallmark dishes is called sancocho, sancocho de gallina. This is a national dish. And I grew up eating sancocho and knowing it as a either the soup that you eat when you're sick or the mm-hmm. soup that you eat when you're hungover. Hmm. Uh, and it's, it's a clear broth soup with culantro and it's really chunky. When I'm hmm. talking about a chunky soup, it's like you have a quarter of a corn cob in the soup and you have like a quarter of a boiled potato in the <laughs> soup with a leg of chicken. It's not uh-huh. either minced up nicely in the soup. It's, yep. <laughs> it's a meal with some broth in it. Nice. Um, it's really, it's really cleansing though too. And that's why we say we eat it when we're sick or when we're hot over. <laughs> There's um, ropa vieja. So ropa vieja is also, it's both Panamanian and Cuban, mm-hmm. but there's 
there's slight differences that make one Cuban versus Panamanian. And so ropa vieja translates into shredded clothes or old mm-hmm. clothes. Mm-hmm. And that's because we use shredded beef. Mm-hmm. And it's primarily, it's slow cooked. It's cooked in a tomato sauce with bell peppers. I would love to get into the differences probably later. I'll expand upon this in an article between mm-hmm. Cuban ropa vieja and Panamanian ropa vieja. Nice. Tortillas. Okay. Tommy, when you think of a tortilla, what do you think of, Chef? Uh, tortillas, I think of flour or corn. I did study a little bit on the Panamanian style. It's, I think it's a typical, a little more of a corn thick cake, like a corn cake. Correct. So, okay. Most of us think tortillas, very thin corn, sometimes flour, um, you know, masa. Ours in Panama are exactly that. They're thick corn cakes, thick fried corn cakes, and they're incredible to me. I love, it's got something with spite. It's got something with density. So that's, our tortilla is not a thin, flat thing. Ours is thick and it is. Yours is a real deal. Ours is a real deal. And there's also things like carimanolas, which are stuffed yuca fritters. We have hojaldras. Oh, I love hojaldras. And these are like a deep fried fritter. I'm trying to think, it's almost think of like a beignet, so to speak. Tostones. Tostones in Panama or patacones in other countries, which are fried plantains, um, smashed fried plantains, which I've grown up eating forever with my tostonera. You know, you smash mm-hmm. it, you fry it, you salt mm. it. So nice. those are some of the traditional Panamanian foods, you know, and there's many more. Ardas con pollo, empanadas. Um, but, you know, maybe those are some that folks are most familiar with. And again, mm-hmm. back to that spiciness. We are we are low on the Scoville scale when it comes to spiciness, you know, mm-hmm. because you know our our primary base base foods and ingredients are the you know yuca, mm-hmm. which is the a starchy resistant root vegetable. You know, mm-hmm. we have yuca, we have bananas, plantains, a lot of fresh tropical fruits, um, seafood. You know, we're surrounded by the ocean on both sides. We're in isthmus, uh, you know, ceviches and brandinos and that sort of thing. Hmm. Amazing. Well, you know, I tell you, I, I, this has inspired me to start researching Panamanian food a little bit. I'm not, I might look for a couple of cookbooks, but I'm kind of lazy. So I'll go on the internet. And if you email me some ideas, I'll go ahead and give it a shot with my wife. My wife is from Brazil. And so, oh my gosh. yeah, I don't know if I told you. So yeah, Sonia. So she, it's interesting because in Brazil, you know, the staples or the standard is a lot of things, you know, but it's chicken, it's beef, et cetera. But there's always the rice and the beans, probably kind of like Cuba, you know, um, mm-hmm. just awesome. And she, but she's spiced. She's really taken off since she's been here the last, what is it? Eight years. Uh, and really, really, yeah. Coming up with some cool foods, but I wanted to yeah. say, yeah, but you know, this has been fascinating, but before we close, um, I wanted to mention, um, something too, about you have a company, your own company as a consultant called <laughs> do, do West. And yeah. the reason I bring it up is I'm looking at your, uh, as I researched you a bit, I'm looking at your uh, Instagram and, and a lot of different things you've done. I think, oh my gosh, who puts this together for her? She really, because I don't, you know, I'm an older guy, right? So I don't, my, I don't have anything. I need to hire someone like you. And there are people in the world of podcasts and all these places, they probably could learn so much to have you involved in setting, uh, you know, to, to maybe kind of enhance what they're doing. So uh, I'd like to just maybe give me a brief on what, what you do there. Absolutely. And- it's funny that you bring that up because Due West, my own private brand communications agency, is not something that I talk about very much publicly, mm-hmm. but I should. Mm-hmm. And that that was really born of my work as a food writer. Mm-hmm. When I started becoming better known amongst the food industry, I had restaurant groups and chefs reach out to me asking if I would help them consult and manage their social media, do copywriting for them, for their restaurant groups. And it it only it not only stemmed because of my reputation as a food writer, but it was also they had seen my consulting work in corporate America, mm. you know, and I was able to share with them, okay, here's what I did, you know, in terms of a digital footprint, marketing and analytics in corporate America. You know, I know how to speak to Fortune 500 C-level executives <laughs> during my time in business management consulting. And they said, well, could you could you take that? And help us out and apply it to that. And that's really when, when this agency was born. And I have to say, I wouldn't be able to be a food writer and sustain myself financially 
without my agency because that's truly my bread and butter. But then mm. I would never have my agency without being a food writer. So they, they both work in a mutually beneficial symbiotic mm. relationship. Mm-hmm. And again, part of telling a good story is, and it's something that I put on my website, you know, it's simply not enough to exist. You must be heard. Mm-hmm. How do you get heard? How do you get your story in front of a consumer's eye? Mm-hmm. And it actually goes back to a lot of things that perhaps people might not find so sexy, like website analytics, which are truly hugely important. You know, where is your traffic coming from? What SEO keywords are you using? How are you marketing your placements on social media? What time wow. of day are you marketing them? Do you use Google AdWords? These are all things that restaurateurs, F&B, I work with wellness brands, have to think of when they are trying to introduce their products to the consumer market. Because again, mm. you might have the best, let's say, you might have the best beverage in the whole world or something super cool and new. It doesn't matter if how good it is if no one hears or sees about it. So how do you get in touch with those people? Mm. And how do you get in touch with them in a meaningful way that you can learn best practices from? And that's where I use my web analytics background in website traffic mm-hmm. to help inform and guide my clients. Um, and again, you know, it, it kind of layers like the editorial side. It's like, okay, here's the pretty covering on the surface and the beautiful story. Mm-hmm. And then the back end is here's how we're going to market that story or your product or your website and, you know, get it placed that you get more sales, walk in traffic, that you get more product orders. I, I enjoy both, you know. It's, mm-hmm. And I think, you know, I would say to anyone listening, and they might be asking, well, how do I become a food writer? I don't think I... I don't think I would have ever been able to make it as a food writer off of food writing alone. I'd be a starving food writer. I really do think that food writers need to, and any creative person needs to think of themselves as a business with multi-revenue mm-hmm. streams mm-hmm. and multiple services and either in order to support and sustain themselves. And you can even see that happening with restaurants too right now. Mm-hmm. Restaurant is no longer a restaurant anymore. Mm-hmm. A restaurant is online delivery, outdoor dining if they offer it, their takeout. They're bodegas, they're grocery stores, they have e-commerce platforms selling their goods. Maybe they've also started a wine or a spirit section. And that, that's what I would advise anyone who's interested in becoming a food writer. It's like, that's great and that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. But also, what else are you offering and bringing to the table? Because mm-hmm. there's very few folks who make it off food writing alone. One last question. Uh, are you writing a book? I'm working with a celebrity chef. Um, here in America, uh, co-authoring her cookbook. And it's, oh gosh, Chef, I'm so excited about it. It's just, again, one of those, it's one of those projects and one of these, these endeavors that made me realize why I started becoming a food writer in the first place. Like it has just gotten me so fired up and the subject oh, of it. I'm, oh man, I can't wait until we can put it out there to the world mm. and let people know hey, this is the, the book that we're writing because, again, it's, it's at the heart of storytelling. I'm really excited to help her tell mm. her story because I think it's something that folks need to hear. And I've been really fortunate that because of this first book offer that I've gotten a couple other authors to co-author um, other people's cookbooks. So that's something that's in the works for 2020 and 2021. But, mm-hmm. you know, again, that's something that I, I really love doing. So... If you're a chef, if you're a mixologist, if you're a baker and, you know, you're thinking about telling your story to the world, you don't know how to present it. I would love, I would love to work with you to Mm. figure out how we can, how we can tell your story in the most meaningful, beautiful manner. It would be an honor to work with you. What would you recommend if people want to get a hold of you or follow you? I'm Whittier on Twitter. And uh, that's where I get a little bit spicy and sassy. And I would say for anyone that really wants to stay in the know with the food industry and what food writers are up to and breaking news, uh, check me out on Twitter at Maricel Salazar. On Instagram is where you can see a more visual portfolio of what I'm doing day to day, what I'm eating, where I'm, well, not traveling to these days. And that's at Maricel M. Salazar. Uh, yeah, those are my two primary platforms. And I post about what I'm writing on both platforms equally, so you'll be able to see things I've recently authored. Well, Marisa, thank you so much for uh, being on the show today. I really enjoyed it, and I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you so much, Chef. You too. 
For all of you listening out there, Chef Special is part of the Believe Podcast Network. Check it out at Believe.com. And follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Patrick Honeywell. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.